0: Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. This is Jack Hoffman. For nearly 31 years, Tico Steakhouse has been a staple for fine dining in Jackson, Mississippi. I would like to invite you to come experience our family tradition of our hospitality, sizzling steaks, and healthy port beverages. East County Lime Road in Ridgeland, 601-956-1030.
1: It's time for True American Heroes. For the Record with Jack Rutland another exclusive on Super Talk Mississippi 102.1 FM. Many of our heroes have taken their stories with them to the grave, but this show is about the stories and personal experiences of these veterans. welcome to True American Heroes for the Record. We're honored to have you with us today, and I'm especially honored to have with us Reverend Albert Weeks, who is probably no stranger to a lot of our listening audience. Uh, Brother Albert, uh, thank you for coming in and spending a few minutes with us talking about your military experiences. Thank you, sir. Your home is the Hazelhurst area. Your dad, I believe, was an uh, uh, elected official in uh, Kapai County yes, back sir. in the 60s. Is that correct? Yes sir, he was a uh, circuit clerk there for 16 years. Wow, neat. So well-known family. If he, yes, if he got in, if he stayed in 16 years, he uh, had to have a lot of folks that uh, looked up to him and respected him and voted for him. So, um we're honored to have you here. Is we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people, which is a part of your your life experience. Uh, a lot of people may or may not be aware of what's called the Cold War. Uh, You're actually retired Air Force. You were yes. in 22 years, correct? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you were in from 1963 to 85. If I'm yes, not sir. correct. Okay, That's correct. And that is actually your entire. For 22 years, that was during what is known in history as the Cold War, which was actually somewhere between 1947 and uh, 1999. When, uh, uh, of course, at the end of World War II, there was that immediate confrontation between uh, the Soviet bloc and the uh, the United States and England and other uh, countries, and uh, and it lasted until the uh, bank of the Soviet Union back when President Reagan was president in about 1991. But it was a very, very dangerous time for the entire world. Yes, sir. Uh, we had so many nuclear weapons, as well as the Soviets having just thousands of nuclear warheads. It would have been mutual annihilation, I think was the term that was used a lot. But you were your, your entire 22 years of serving the United States Air Force – was during this time but i don't want to get into that right off i want to talk just a wee bit about you getting involved into you you joined the you enlisted in the air force in 1963 yes sir i did you enlisted there in hazelhurst or did you go to jackson jackson you went to jackson and went from there your basic was where uh lackland air force base san antonio texas now in our talking before you 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 had a lot of different assignments, and some of these are really interesting that we're going to try to touch on. But after you got your basic training, your first assignment was where? Uh, Chanute Air Force Base,
0: Illinois,
1: I was up there going through the school for aircraft electrical work. So pretty much all of your career was involved in, in keeping aircraft in the air. Yes, sir. And that's, as, as I've said, knowing several pilots that I do and growing up around those kind of guys, uh, you're one of the unsung heroes in the Air Force and in any kind of, any kind of military service that has uh, uh, aircraft. It's that crew chief who signs off that that plane's ready to do what it's supposed to do every day. Yes, sir. I had that job towards the end of my career. So Pretty incredible as, uh, responsibility. A maintenance
0: supervisor, yes,
1: sir. Wow. All right, let's talk just a little bit about some of the things you did. Now, um, I may have this out of order, so bear with me, uh, Brother Albert. You uh, you did serve some time in the Strategic Air Command. Yes, sir. Tell us a little bit about SAC and what its mission was so that you remember.
0: SAC uh, was almost a different entity from the Air Force at the time. Uh, it was developed by Curtis LeMay. Mm-hmm. I actually met him one time. Wow. Wow. Um, but uh, he wanted an elite-type thing. My normal day of working on aircraft, not only just fixing problems and stuff like that, would be to get up about 5 in the morning, get my room ready for inspection, <laughs> uh, get myself ready for inspection, right. Right. go to uh, uh, the chow hall and eat. We walked to the mana shop, which was about, uh, about a half mile, uh, they do not want you parked park down there. So uh, we would go down there, have open ranks inspection, do calisthenics, and then go work on airplanes. Now, that was uh, Curtis LeMay's sack. Uh, a lot of legends have been told about oh, LeMay. Yeah. I've heard a lot of those uh, stories. Sometimes I wonder if they're true. Sometimes <laughs> I think maybe they are. Uh
1: but there were a few generals back in those days that had uh,
0: dubious reputations.
1: Yeah, he so, was an old World War II general that was in the 8th Air Force and uh, had a bomber command under his mm-hmm. name and uh, and had, had just real hard nose. Mm-hmm. I, I heard some of those stories because my dad was in SAC, yeah. and then my brother was in SAC, and they heard those same stories. But in your role, you, you had that important role of making sure these aircraft were able to fly. Now, SAC was unique. I remember the slogan, peace is our profession. And, and and war is just a hobby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that wasn't in print. <laughs> but, uh, that came SAC, out of Vietnam era. Yeah, uh. SAC was unique because, I mean, it was, it was preparedness to respond to an attack. Yes, sir. And so, therefore, it had, it had the, the best weapons we had, and it had nuclear weapons. Yes, sir. Uh, the B-52s uh, were the number one bomb aircraft. Uh, weapon-carrying aircraft, the 135s were refuelers that got the bombers to the long-distance targets. I mean, and these guys actually slept out near their aircraft. Yeah, so you had a, a um, what they called an alert pad right. for the
0: alert launch, and you had this, like a blockhouse underground, uh, and you could actually see where they went down under the ground. It was well wow. um, protected and stuff. And this is noteworthy that... Every day, sometime, you would hear a, a siren go off. Mm. And this went on during the day. It went on during the night. Um, they had three basic practices. It was called Alpha, Baker, or Charlie. Uh, a Charlie alert was they would run out, scramble everybody out, uh, crank up the engines, and then shut them down to make sure everything worked. Uh, the Baker alert was they run out, crank up the engines, taxi out, To the runway, taxi Mm -hmm. down the runway, come back, shut down. An alpha alert was when they actually launched aircraft, would fly a pattern and then come back. These were all alerts, but we were never told what was an alert or not. Anytime we
1: responded, it was like the real thing. We did not know. Were were maintenance personnel involved in, in having to serve out at the alert pad? Yes, sir. Well, not at the alert pad,
0: but on the alert aircraft. Uh, it was what they call a no loan zone. You had to have two people to go in there. You had to have a badge to show your way in. Right. You had to stay in contact with the person that uh, you were with. If you were caught by yourself, they would spread eagle you on the concrete, which was quite hot in Louisiana. <laughs> uh, I had that happen to me one time. I stepped behind a blast fence to relieve myself. Mm-hmm because they didn't have bathrooms out there. Certainly, And uh, a uh, canine dog keyed on me. And the next thing I know, and I'm it's kneeling leading. down with my hands behind my head in the back of a pickup truck headed into the main
1: command center to be processed and released. So it, it makes sense, though, because if they were trying to alert, I mean, yeah. if, the, if the alert signal went off, to scramble of the crews, and if there was a mechanical issue with one of those alert aircraft, yes, sir. you guys had to be there to fix it if you yes. could. Yes, sir. We had what we call a launch truck,
0: which set out there on the runway with all the technicians in it uh, when the aircraft were cranking up or launching and stuff like that. So... If something happened, we would go out on the running aircraft, assess the situation. If we could fix it, fix it. If not, we won't. If it was a situation where it was alert launch and you got on the aircraft and you
1: fixed the problem, they'd shut the doors and take you with them. Hmm. This is pretty incredible. Um, I've I've read a lot and studied a lot and even seen video and actually saw, I've seen many B-52 and 135 takeoffs. But I've never seen a, a live scramble uh, in person. Uh, but it's incredible the, the spacing between aircraft, the 52s, the bombers would be launched first. Mm-hmm. And the spacing between those aircraft. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, sir. Um, on an alert launch uh, would be
0: uh, one aircraft would be throttling up, bringing it up to full power at the end of the runway. Uh, with his brakes locked. The other aircraft would be halfway down the runway Mm. at full power, fixing to take off, and no one would be just climbing out on the end. So they were about uh, maybe a mile apart. Um, They added down to how many minutes or seconds there were between them. But if one of them messed up... uh, You had a real problem. Real problem. Uh, It happened in Okinawa. Uh, B-52 did not... Make it on takeoff. He
1: went off the end of the runway. all the bombs went off and stuff many years later. but right. now the tankers now I just said do the tank did the tankers take off first or did they take off after the bombers? They took off after the bombers, okay. Okay. Even though <laughs> the bombers couldn't finish their mission if the tankers didn't get there. <laughs> well, the way they worked that was if the, uh,
0: like I was stationed in Barksdale, if our bombers took off, mm-hmm. there was already a set of tankers in the air That's from right. another base. That's like right. Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi was a SAC base at that time. That's right. So their tankers would be already in the refueling right.
1: area. When our bombers got there, so we could top them off and they could go. Incredible time, because that was going on at bases all over the United States and around the world. Yes, sir, 24 hours a day. I don't remember hearing, but do you know how many SAC bases we had back during that time? Who 30? About that, something like that. that. And that's not even counting our missiles that we had in silos uh, up in the northern part of our country. The Titan missile systems and and the Minuteman, yeah. That's right, um, this was a very serious thing. This wasn't pretend. This yeah. wasn't just drilling. These young men mm-hmm. were prepared to launch an attack against a target. They didn't know the target right. until never, they got into the air and they got to that failsafe point, and they were then open we, the seal. We
0: never knew whether it was a real thing or not. They, they would not ever say this is an exercise. We
1: played yeah. it for real every time. Wow, it gives me indigestion thinking about it now and that's a long time ago. I that was it was really serious and that's why so many people realize that there was this this there was a lot of fear about somebody making a mistake or especially another country doing something foolish. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of restraint on the part of the United States to make sure that those kind of things didn't happen and thank the Lord it did not happen. Well, we're we're interviewing uh Brother Albert Weeks, a pastor uh, in our area, a pastor at Bethesda Baptist Church over in Jefferson County, and he's been gracious enough to come in and talk to us about his experience. Now, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to let him talk about the fastest plane in the world and his experience with the Blackbird. Welcome back. I'm honored to have uh, with us today and Brother Albert Weeks, uh, who's a pastor in this area, but is also a retired United States Air Force with 22 years of service to his country. Uh, and we've been talking about his experience during the Cold War, but now we're going to get into a little bit into Vietnam. He did, you did serve uh, in the, the Vietnam conflict uh, in-country. Yes, sir. You were over there for about a year, and you were yes, stationed sir. where? Cameron Bay. Cameron Bay. Yes, sir. And you were doing the same thing, keeping aircraft flying. Yes, sir. And I know that was an experience that makes you a significant person because I have a lot of respect for Vietnam vets, especially uh, those who served in-country. So that that had to be a, a, an unusual experience for you being in a, another country while a war was going on, an yes, actual sir. shooting war. Uh, and your, the aircraft you were mainly responsible for were? The C-130. The C-130, yes. okay. I would love to talk more about that, but I really want us to talk about something that you shared that you were involved in, and that was the development of one of the most sophisticated aircraft the United States has in its inventory, and I think it's still flying, is the the Blackbird, or the SR-71 Spy plane.
0: Yes, sir. The SR seventy one has been retired. Oh, it has been. Um, okay. A few places in NASA has some of the aircraft they use for test programs. Got gotcha. The cost of operation and the development of satellite imagery and stuff made it obsolete. The
1: SR seventy one was supposed to take the place of the U two. Yes, sir. And the U two, as we know, was a highly effective, high altitude. Slow-moving but high-altitude surveillance aircraft that was involved in the Cuban crisis. Actually, was shot. one was shot down over the Soviet Union. All kinds of stuff about the U-2. I actually saw a U-2 myself when I was a youngster. But uh, the SR-71 was supposed to be unbelievable, and it turned out to be an unbelievable aircraft. And you were involved in the development. So yes. share a little bit of that. All right. I was at uh, Barcel Air Force Base uh, in Strategic Air Command.
0: Now, once you're in a command, the command can move you wherever they need you. Sure. So um, I was called in one day and given orders to report to Beale Air Force Base, California, to the 42nd Hundred Strategic Missile Wing. Now, I don't know anything about missiles, <laughs> so I figured I was going to be working on support aircraft, something yeah. of that nature. Yeah. 4200 is the designation of a test program, SAC, used as a code. mm mm-hmm. When we got out there, there was probably a dozen of us. Uh, we didn't know what we were going to do.
1: Now, let me it? stop you here. Right. Okay. So, now, you know, that's interesting that there was only a dozen of you, and for this type of assignment, I would suspect they probably picked people they had a lot of confidence in.
0: Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> we, we went through a thorough background track. Uh, NSA went back, and then they later on went through a second phase of background check.
1: But I bet you were also very good at what you did. Well, I suppose I, I, like. Yeah, I bet you were. You wouldn't have been there.
0: But um, uh, once we got out there, um, they farmed us out to different things. We didn't have any aircraft yet. I went down to Palmdale, Air, uh, Palmdale California, to the Skunk Works, they call it. The old Skunk Works. And um, that's where I went to school on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. We were introduced to it, told a lot of systems work and stuff. Spent some time at Edwards also actually working on some of them down there where they're doing the early test program. It was in 1966, about a year after I was stationed out there, we got our first aircraft. And we began immediately going into training and operations. Pretty and
1: impressive aircraft, wasn't yes, it? Yes, sir, it was. It looked uh, like a black bird.
0: <laughs> well, it was black painted. It's, yes, the it paint, was. The paint was a special paint that absorbed radar
1: signals. Mm-hmm.
0: It shaped is a stealth type shape. Mm-hmm. So its radar signature was about the size of a sparrow.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: So it was the first of the stealth aircraft.
1: The beginning of the stealth program.
0: It, it used a special fuel which did not leave a contrail. If you look up and see aircraft going through the yeah. air, you'll see a contrail behind them. This fuel burned so. Much that it did not leave a contrail.
1: That's amazing. Of
0: course, was... he would only be at that
1: altitude for a second anyway. Now, do you can you share with us uh, speeds and altitudes and things like that on the SR seventy one?
0: The uh, release speed on the aircraft was uh, Mach three point two. That was a record it set. No one knows what the maximum speed is. We used to get reports in. Uh, this thing had a computer on it uh, when we didn't have computers. It was old hard drive disk computer, sure. and it monitored all the systems in the aircraft. And we'd have to come back, and some of these rollouts we would have would be almost 30, 40 feet long because Good it night. was put on a graph. Right. And we would have to read this graph to make sure every valve closed, every switch uh, relay closed, to. and stuff like that, because uh, fuel transfer was very critical on this aircraft, its CG, because of its shape. Being 105 feet long and only 50 foot wide and delta wing, fuel movement was very critical on it. So they started putting the the altitudes and the speed up on the top of them. And then later on they stopped because they kept climbing up and uh, people started talking. So
1: they said no, no more. You said a moment ago, Mach 3? Mach 3.2. Now, can that you translate worldly. that for for, for most lay, uh, you know folks that don't know what that means?
0: Well, um give you an idea uh, that's faster than the muzzle velocity of a 30-06 bullet.
1: Miles per hour? Yep. Can, you, can you guess the miles per uh, hour? About
0: 24. 2400, 2400
1: miles an hour yes sir. but it couldn't sustain that speed for a long period of time could it was that mainly for use when it was actually above that was it's cru-
0: that was its cruise speed oh that was
1: cruise, cruise speed.
0: speed the wow, maximum
1: speed was never released on it what about altitude because i remember altitude, hearing that it would fly on the edge of space yeah
0: altitude um, officially uh they say was eighty thousand feet plus Good night. And the plus was probably up around 100 right into there. The navigation system they used on it, because we have GPS today, but the navigation system they used on this was what they call Astronav. And what they did, they had a picture in the computer of the stars above the aircraft. And they would match this with the computer, and that would tell them where exactly the aircraft where was. They didn't uh, have to worry about clouds up there. There was no it the, clouds. They called it the extra crew member. Uh, it, was all radio- <laughs> it was all a robot-type thing. But to um, give you an idea of something going that fast, uh, you were talking about it leaked fuel because it was a wet wing. Hydraulic fuel, Because yeah. it had to stretch. It was made out of titanium, which was a very expensive metal. We didn't have enough titanium to build the aircraft. We had to get it from the Russians. <laughs> That's a true story. Uh, so... The- they got all this together, and put this aircraft together. 1950s type technology in this yes. thing now. Yeah. I saw my first postage stamp circuits. We have microchips now, but postage stamp circuits in this aircraft. Um, it was so far advanced. Uh, Kelly Johnson came down and he said, that "90 percent, 90 percent of this aircraft is totally experimental. We don't have a clue whether it's going to
1: work." But we were using it. He
0: said, "That's your job in, in developing this thing." We don't know if it's going to work, but at the end of the test program, when we went into full operation, uh, some 80% of them worked perfectly.
1: It just seems like in the in the 60s, even before that, in the 70s, the technology was just going by leaps and bounds. Yes, of course, that was being driven by the concern that another country might have a technology we didn't have, but at the same time, it always came back to member of the ground crew a super talk mississippi
0: (laughs) media production